The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. This begins the story, really, of what's known as the Jacob Cycle, the the next chunk of the story up to chapter 35 really focus, focuses largely on Jacob and Esau. And it's a story that from beginning to end is really about conflict. And it's not anything that we really enjoy. I mean, I can't say I look to Scripture to, you know, study conflict because I don't really like conflict. Uh, but it's very much a part of uh, Scripture. And it's very much a part of this very dysfunctional family. And uh, Jacob and Esau start off from, from before birth, uh, really at war and in conflict. And uh, as you look through these stories, you, know, you got to kind of ask yourself, what, what's this really all about? Why is, God, uh, why is God creating this environment, this climate of conflict? Well, I think there are good reasons for it. And, uh, we, we'll, we'll start uncovering it this morning um, much of it we won't get to till later as the story unfolds, but it introduces the concept here. Uh, and I have three simple points this morning. The first is that they are rivals by nature. Uh, and the story starts off with the two of them in the womb. Uh, God gives this prophetic word as Rebecca is just feeling this conflict in, inwardly. And she says, man, literally it says, I think I'm going to die. What good is it to be pregnant if I don't survive the pregnancy? And she goes to God. She says, God, what is going on here? And God himself gives a word that there are two uh, warring nations that are at conflict within her. And uh, the story gets this backdrop from the beginning that God's hand is in this. Okay, Now, God's hand, of course, is not in the conflict. God is not creating conflict, but God has a purpose in it, right? And uh, that God has uh, already ordained the outcome of this struggle. Uh, he says that in the end, there's this conflict, in the end, the younger is going to win. The younger child is going to be the victor in this conflict. And so at the be- beginning of the story, it's clear that God's purpose is being carried out here, okay? That God's plan is not going to be thwarted or set back by this conflict. And in fact, in the end, God's purpose will be achieved and accomplished. And it's always good to keep that perspective as we look through this story. That given that in mind, that you know, God's hand is in this, God is at work. From there on, the story just kind of goes downhill, honestly. It's like nothing very redeeming about the rest of the story. So let's look from there. Um, God's working... But as the kids come out, uh, we already start to get a hint of, of the issues. And the first issue is that these, these boys have great conflict because they are very different just in their makeup and their nature. Uh, Esau comes out this hairy wolf guy, right? He's covered in red hair. And already at birth, he's kind of marked as this outdoorsman kind of guy. He's kind of a Grizzly Adams kind of sort of fellow. And I kind of like this because I myself it kind of fall into this category. I don't know if I was born covered with hair, but I certainly grew into it. And for a good part of my years, I had a big bushy beard and was the mountain man type. And uh, that's Esau, this kind of mountain man guy, right? 
Then comes out uh, Jacob. Uh, and it says what, what characterizes him or what uh, he's named for. By the way, Esau sounds like the Hebrew word that means hairy. Okay? So he gets named, if you were to translate it literally, his name's really Harry, right? Harry. So you got Harry. Then you got um, Jacob. And uh, at birth, he comes out grabbing his brother's heel, right? Hang on to his heel. Now, in, in Hebrew language, a heel grabber was somebody who was a trickster and a deceiver, right? So he gets named after that, heel grabber, right? So you got Harry and the little deceiver guy, right? Brothers, right? That's the start. Great setup, okay? It's no wonder they're sibling rivalry, okay? And that's how it starts. And uh, significantly, as we go through the story, uh, they both kind of live up to their namesakes, right? They both kind of live up to this characterization. Uh, but it doesn't stop there. So the rivalry was partly by their nature. They were very different. More so, though, or perhaps added to it, adding fuel to the fire, is that they were rivals by parenting. All right? And the next phase of the story says this, as the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. Go Grizzly Adams. He was an outdoorsman. He lived in a log cabin, right? Grizzly Adams. But Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. <coughs> Isaac, excuse me, Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game. Esau brought home, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Uh, now, of course, all of us who have parents, all of us who have parents, all of us who have children who are parents, identify right away that this is, this is the setup for trouble, right? We all know rule number 101 of parenting is never have favorites, right? Never have favorites. Uh, we're supposed to love all of our children equally, which I'm convinced is impossible, by the way. But we're not supposed to at least brag about it, right? If we have favorites, we're supposed to somehow cloak it so that it's invisible, right? Uh, we're supposed to try, at least, to love our children equally and fairly. And uh, every three-year-old knows this, because by the time they're about three or four years old, the battle cry of every child is, that's not fair, right? You do anything that even hints at the tiniest degree of inequality. And the child will cry, that's not fair, right? Well, I mean, here's Jacob and Esau from day one. It says Isaac loved Esau, okay? He got the T-shirt made and everything. You know, Esau's my boy, right? Um, and, and already at the beginning, there's this picking of sides, right? And, of course, that is a failure in any kind of parenting, any kind of family, in any kind of child rearing. And uh, the reality is that in the best home, okay, in the most perfect home, this is really important, most perfect home where you may measure out to the 16th of a teaspoon everything, right, to make sure it's divided fairly. Okay, if you're one of these parents that may be felt you know, picked on, singled out as a child, and neglected. Maybe you go to extra measure as a parent to make sure there's equality as a parent, right? I'll tell you, it doesn't matter. In the most perfect home, children are going to feel always that the other sibling is loved more, okay? It's just kind of a gen general rule. And the reason for that is anytime somebody gets something you don't, you always feel that it's unfair, no matter how much you got before, right? Because the memory doesn't look backward. It only sees the, 
the present, right? So if, if, if their cake, their piece of cake is two grams more, right, you're going to cry unfair and you're going to feel unloved. Okay, no matter the fact that you already got three pieces of cake, doesn't matter, right? That's the way it works. And so children grow up already uh, quite jilted because our sin nature, our selfishness, the way things work out, our perspective on the world, children by nature tend to feel that somehow they were shortchanged. If you don't believe that, take a family of 10 kids, ask every one of them, you know, who was the favorite child? None of them will say me, right? It's always somebody else, okay? Uh, in rare cases like this, maybe they would, but oftentimes it's just part of growing up. So you got that to start with, but then you add to it any kind of selective choice by a parent, and children will feel uh, left out and neglected. And uh, anytime children feel that, the natural response is to, is to be an equalizer, right? If you feel like you're being slighted or cheated, you're going to do what you can to equalize the sides. And that's very much what happens as the story unfolds with Jacob and Esau. Um, now some parents would say, and I've heard people argue this actually, that this is why all families should only have, uh, you know, Chinese style, one child, right? That uh, the way to solve sibling rivalry is that everybody should just have one child. Um, in one sense, that would maybe minimize um, the problem, but it, it actually doesn't recognize the true root of the problem. Uh, and if you look closely here, uh, the, the, the verse tells us that the problem really wasn't just that es Isaac loved Esau, because he did, but we take it to a, a deeper level. Notice why he loved him. He said Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed the benefits of Esau. Right? He enjoyed the extra, you know, deer and whatever he hunted. I don't even know in those places. Goat, I guess, wild goat. He enjoyed the wild meat that his son brought him. Right? Now, you can do this with one child. Uh, it doesn't take two, three, or five, ten kids. You can do this with one where you as a parent seek to have your needs met and fulfilled through your children. Okay, again, okay, if, if, if sibling, you know, fostering sibling rivalry by showing favoritism is, favoritism is bad, rule number two of parenting is never meet your own personal needs through your children. Okay? You can write that one down. It's going to cross-stitch on your wall. Never meet your own personal needs through your children. All right? And that's exactly what Isaac is doing here. He's got a taste for wild meat. You know, just plain old sheep isn't good enough. It's got to be wild sheep. I don't know why. But that's what he wants, and he hungers for that. And he loves Esau because he's getting his own selfish needs met through his children, through his child. Well, you don't need two kids to do that. You can have just one. Um, and it really spells disaster for a parent-child relationship. Right? And it's never healthy for a kid. Um, now, of course, we know that. We know that we should never use our children, right? <laughs> it's kind of a given. Don't use your children. There's something that just sounds wrong about that, right? And yet, the reality is that oftentimes parents very subtly and very unconsciously do just that, right? And this is how it works. Um, we, as children, grow up with deficits, grow up with uh, identity issues, right? You wanted to be a star football player when you were a kid. 
minor drawback is that you grew up to weigh a whopping 99 pounds and were five foot three. And to play football, your only position would have been like the line, actually. Or maybe, you know, the ball, <laughs> right? And so, you know, that dream failed for you. So you go through life feeling this aching gnaw of failure that you could not accomplish something that was important to you, that would give you identity, that would give you meaning and worth as a person. But lo and behold, you have a son, and he grows up to be like the strapping six-foot-five chunk of beef. And you're going, man, I could fulfill that dream through my son, right? I'm going to put my own expectations and ideas of identity that were failed in my life on my child, right? Uh, of course, that never happens, does it, right? That's not why there's 10,000 sports leagues around the world, right? We're at, starting at age, you know, seven months. We've got kids out there playing soccer with lunatic parents screaming at their kids, score, score, kill them, get them, right? Because no identity issues there, right? Right? Uh, that's why we've got, you know, dance clubs and gymnastics and uh, piano lessons. And, and, of course, all those things are not bad in themselves. I'm not saying that we should never let our kids have opportunities, right? But how often is it not giving our kids opportunities? How, mu- how often is it us fulfilling our own childhood dreams through our children, right? And I've seen this, and I saw this when I was coaching in the in coaching sports. I mean, I saw at the high school level just parents... Um, doing horrible things to their children, right? Uh, I remember uh, one track meet, it was actually a state track meet, and to get to state, you know, in any state, any sporting level as a high school student, to get to the state level competition is a big deal, and ought to be a fun time. I mean, you ought to just really enjoy it, celebrate it. And I remember one parent just reaming out uh, his child to the point that the child was was just in tears, and wanted to just walk away from everything, not even compete, right? Uh, and behind it was this drive, right? You've got to be successful because I need that, right? That's a horrible thing to put a child in. Um, and that's exactly what uh, Isaac is doing here to Esau. I love you, son, because you give me beef, right? <laughs> uh, now, how would you like to be that child? So that your value, your purpose and worth and meaning is that you supply meat for your father, right? Okay? That's exactly where Esau is, right? And that's exactly, sadly, where Isaac is. And what's most sad in this is that Isaac himself was a, was a very special child. Uh, he was not an only child, but in some senses he was an only child. He was a child who was favored because he was the child of promise, Right? And uh, in his home, all of the other siblings got sent away, okay? And uh, Isaac became the chosen child through whom God's promise would, would be transferred, uh, would be completed and carried on, right? But what's sad in this picture is you don't get this picture of Isaac appreciating and valuing the purpose and promise of God at work in his own life. And the purpose and promise of God that was to be carried on through him to his children, to his descendants. Right? There's no sense of that. Now, it's, it's sad because earlier, uh, we looked a couple weeks ago, that Isaac was a man of faith, of prayer, who had prayed for his wife's uh, pregnancy. But as his children and his sons grow up, somehow that's lost, and he becomes self-focused. 
And it's all about his needs and himself. Uh, and you don't see any sense of him seeking for the uh, onworking of God's promise through his children. Well, of course, uh, we can't just leave it there. And I'm going to say just a word about good parenting. <laughs> um, you know, just don't do that to your kids. Good parenting, don't pick favorites. Uh, every child is uniquely created by God. We cannot treat them equally. Okay? And to try to treat them equally is to um, discredit or to not value their unique differences. All right? Children are different, and we do have to treat and, and love them differently. Uh, but we don't do that by trying to treat them completely equally. We ultimately do it by recognizing their God-given gifts and abilities, their uniqueness, and cherishing and really upholding what makes them special and unique. All right? It wasn't wrong for Isaac to value that his son Esau was a good hunter, but he shouldn't have done it uh, to the neglect of his other son. Right? Uh, he should have found what was valuable and unique in both of them and cherished both of them for their own unique personalities as God had made them. Uh, also, uh, I, um, Isaac should have been instilling in his boys their uniqueness and specialness in light of God's program and promise, right? You don't see any sense of that. Um, and you kind of wonder if Isaac had got kind of so caught up in his own selfishness his own identity issues, whatever that was, uh, that he failed to see his identity comes through his being a child of God, a child of promise, right? You want to be a good parent? First thing you need to do is to settle your own identity issues with God, right? Uh, it's really easy to say, well, I'm not going to be a parent like that. I know that that's bad parenting. But the reality is if you haven't really come to know who you are in Christ, you will be ultimately a bad parent, because you will not uh, invest that identity th through the promise of God. Right? Uh, Isaac wasn't doing that. And as a result, sub I think subconsciously these things happen. Right? Uh, we anchor ourselves as good parents by being good children who know that we are ultimately, first and foremost, a child of God. We are His heirs and His children. And our identity ought to be in Him alone. Right? not in what the world attributes to us, right? but what God attributes to us. Uh, when we do that, we take the first huge step in being good and successful parents. Well, with that kind of a foundation, we've <coughs> um, you know, got a stage set for deep sibling rivalry. We've got these two, two brothers who by nature are very different personalities, uh, are favored you know, the family split, picked sides, you know, Rebecca and uh, Jacob are the, you know, the blue shirts, Isaac and Esau, the green shirts, you know, uh, they've got it divided, all right, perfect setting for sibling rivalry. Uh, then it goes on from there. They also are rivals by priority or by values, Okay. And the story ends, this, this portion of the story ends this way. Uh, one day uh, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness exhausted and hungry. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. This is how Esau got his other name, Edom, which means red. 
All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your right as firstborn son. Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? Jacob said, first you must promise, you must swear to me that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath, thereby selling all his rights as the firstborn to his brother Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate the meal, then he got up and left. He showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. Uh, This story really illustrates two very different and unique sets of priorities. The first is that of Esau, who really was a guy who lived for today, right? He was a guy who lived in the present and cared only about the here and now, right? So here's the scene. He's been out hunting, and it's a bit ironic. Um, The story says that he was known as a skillful hunter, right? But in this story, it says he comes back with no game, right? He has no game, okay, to put it in a pun. Uh, uh, He's failed, right? And it really is the first hint the author gives that that Esau is headed down a path of failure, right? And it's interesting, when you, can, when you compare Jacob and Esau with their grandfather Abraham, the differences in their lives. Um, and we're reminded in Abraham's life when God said, Abraham, take your son Isaac and go and kill him. Remember that? And they're walking up to Mount Moriah, and they've got the knife, they've got the fire, and Isaac looks up at his dad, and he says, Dad, you know, we've got the knife, we've got the fire, we've got the wood. Um... Where's the sacrifice, right? Where's the animal? And what does Abraham reply? He says, the Lord will provide. God will provide, right? He says, God is a God who will take care, who will meet our needs, who will provide everything that we need, right? And of course, as the story unfolds, Abraham is about to strike his son, to kill him, to offer him as a sacrifice. God prevents him, and he looks up, and there is a ram caught by its horns, and, and uh, Abraham declares, Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. God has provided, right? You don't get that sense here with, Isaac, with Esau. Okay, here's Esau, the skillful hunter, the guy who's supposed to be good at this, gone fishing, comes back with nothing, right? Gone hunting, no game, right? And he was out long enough that he comes back really hungry, right? So it wasn't like he had given it a good try, right? And here's a guy in whom it cannot be said, the Lord will provide, right? And so he comes back, and because he has not uh, learned trust, because he has not sought God as his provider, he comes back, and he's hungry. And uh, it's, it's, it's not known if it's just coincidence or if Jacob sets this up, right? A lot of commentators feel that Jacob, being the cunning kind of shrewd guy that he proves to be, uh, planned and staged this from the beginning, and it's very likely cooks up this really good smelling stew, has a big pot of it on the fire, just happens to be cooking it when uh, Esau comes home. <laughs> it's kind of blowing the flame, you know, the fumes that way. Uh, Esau gets this whiff of this lentil soup. Okay, there's nothing extraordinary about this. It's not like, you know, T-bone steak. It's just soup. Um, but it's, it's to a guy who's very hungry, it smells really good, Right? And his mouth begins to water. And he sees Jacob there on the ground stirring it. And there's obviously a big pot, right? Plenty to share. 
And so Esau, being the typically firstborn bossy older brother, says, I'm starved. Give me some of that. Right? And uh, Jacob keeps his cool, keeps stirring the pot. And he says simply, I'll give you some if you sell me your birthright. Right? Now, get the picture of this trade here, okay? Birthright. What is a birthright? Well, we don't actually know what it was, and the Bible doesn't actually describe it. In this time period, birthright meant a lot of things. It could have, it could have been everything from the absolute, full and complete inheritance of all that the father owned down to some major share of that, okay? We don't know. <clears throat> Whatever it was, it was, it was a sizable thing. Isaac grew to be a man of great wealth, as was his father Abraham, a man of huge lands and cattle and servants. Uh, it had something to do with that inheritance, okay? So, so basically, it has something to do with the major share of your father's estate, okay? And, you're, so, and so here's the deal. You, you get this pot of kind of cheap soup cooking. There's no meat in it. Actually, this word is used for a soup that's meatless. So... You know, he didn't sacrifice a lamb for this, right? It's just beans. Cheap, right? Cheapest soup you can get, actually. Right? And he's negotiating this bowl of soup for his father's, for his brother's share of his father's estate. Okay? Now, by any standard, by any measure, it's a poor trade, right? It's a lousy trade. In fact, many would argue it's a ripoff, right? Okay, if you'd spent your whole inheritance for a bowl of soup, you got ripped off. And I have property for you that I would like to sell, right? Some cheap prime swamp land. Well, uh, the interesting thing is that Esau doesn't flinch. He says, what's my birthright to me if I'm going to die anyway, right? It was, now, of course, uh, if that were a true statement, maybe, maybe there would have been something in it. Probably Esau was quite exaggerating, right? Uh, I don't think he was starving to death. But it tells us something about his perspective on life. He cares only for the moment, right? What he's saying here is, I don't really care about tomorrow. I don't care about this estate stuff. I'm not worried about it, right? All I care about is filling my belly today, right? I'm a guy who lives for the moment. Don't bother me about tomorrow, Right. I'm hungry now. Just give me the stupid soup. You can have the birthright. I don't care. Right. Right. It was foolish. It was very short-sighted. And in light of what the birthright was, whatever it was, part of it was the very promise of God. Right. Throughout Abraham's life, everything was about the promise of God to build a great nation and people, to be a people who would possess this whole land, uh, and who would be a blessing to the world. At, at the bottom, bottom of it, Esau says, I don't care about that stuff, right? I don't care about that stuff. The promise of God means nothing to me. And in this story, he becomes really parallel with both Lot and Ishmael, who are sent away from the promise. And in this case, Esau of his own accord says, it's not important to me, right? I just want, I just want the stupid soup, right? I just want to fill my appetite today. Right? Uh, contrasted with that is Jacob, who is not living for today, who is very much scheming for tomorrow. Right? Now, uh, we, we want to 
you know, Isaac is, I mean, Jacob is an interesting character because on the one hand, he shows great foresight in valuing God's promise, right? He sees that, that the birthright is a big deal. He sees that what's at stake here is huge, huge consequences, right? That the future is bright if you are the child of promise, right? And I don't know if he had read the history books about, you know, the history of Abraham, if he'd read the biography, I don't know. But he saw how this worked. Isaac became the, the son of promise, and that was a good deal. And Jacob values that. But notice how he gets it. He's a schemer, right? Uh, he can no more say the Lord provides than his brother can, right? He gets it through plotting and conniving. And I don't know how long this had been hatching in his brain, but I don't think it was a spur-of-the-moment deal. In fact, the wording in the Hebrew is very concise and pointed and driven. Right? Uh, Esau comes back, and Jacob literally says, uh, to, to uh, translate it literally, he says, lunch for the birthright. Right? The soup for the birthright. Promise me it's yours. Very short, very direct, very simple, and very cold and heartless, all right? Um, there's no compassion here. There's no, oh, my poor brother, he's starving. Let me share with my brother, right? Let me be generous. Also, as you compare him with his, his parents and his grandparents, nothing like Abraham. When visitors came starving to visit Abraham, remember what Abraham did? Abraham said, oh, you know, don't, don't travel on. Let me fix lunch for you. And he goes out and he kills a lamb, he makes bread, he makes these preparations. He's a very hospitable person, right? Later, his mother, when she's at the well and the servant goes looking for a bride for Isaac, what does his mother do? Oh, let me, wa- you know, drink, give you some, a drink of water. Let me water your camels as well. Okay, both Abraham and Rebecca are people of great generosity and kindness. But what's Jacob? I mean, he is cold. He is, he is a schemer. He says, you, you're hungry, eh? Hmm. You like the smell of this? Yeah. Well, I got a deal for you. You just sell me your birthright, right? And I'll give you a bowl of soup. He heartless, cold, scheming. He has his eye on the future, but he does not see God carrying it out. He sees it as something he must do through his own shrewdness and skill, right? And so that's what he does. Uh, they had two very different priorities, but in the end, their means were very much the same. It came down to their own doing instead of trusting God. Right? Well, you get to the end of this story, and um, I don't know about you, but I feel like, what am I supposed to do with this? Who exactly here is the good guy? Right? I mean, it starts off telling me that Jacob is apparently the good guy because he wins in the end. But I don't feel particularly comforted by that, right? Um, does anybody vote for Jacob here? <laughs> I'm not voting for him. He's a creep, right? He's living up to his name, heel grabber, right? Uh, but at the same time, do we feel sorry for Esau? Anybody feel sorry for Esau? He's kind of even more of a loser, right? So we get the two loser twins, right? So who do, who do you vote for here? Who, who are you supposed to choose, right? I get to the end of the story and I'm feeling like, this is it? God, we can't come up with like a third choice here or somebody? Right? Isn't there like more children coming or something? Right? What do we do with this story? Right? 
who's supposed to be the good guy here? Well, the author says this. He ends, and he, he really gives the punchline in the last line of the story. He says, Esau ate the meal, got up and left, and he showed contempt for his birthright. Right? Whatever failures there are in Jacob, the failure of Esau was greater in this story. Right? And uh, really the point of this story is to show that Esau had, had really disqualified himself as a child of promise. Right? That he showed himself unworthy of being one who the promise would go through because he did not value it, right? It was not worth anything to him. And so he walks away from it, really, right? Well, we can see that and we agree with the author. Okay, so he didn't want it. He did not value it. He was not worthy of it. But we shift the spotlight to Jacob and we have to say, well, he's not worthy of it either, right? He values it, but he's definitely not worthy of it. And throughout the rest of Jacob's life, that gets repeated over and over again, right? He's not worthy either. So what does it mean? Well, I think there's two important theological lessons that come out of this story. The first lesson is this. That the promise will not be carried forward simply by blood, all right? So in other words, God is not, God is not held captive to this promise that uh, you'll receive the, the promise of blessing simply by being born into it, right? You uh, said, you know, Isaac, the, the, the promise goes to Isaac. The promise will pass through Isaac to his descendants. But there's nothing that guarantees it simply because you're born into the family, right? Esau despised it, it says, rejected it, uh, placed no value on it. And God says, I don't have to choose both of them. I don't have to pass on the blessing simply because they're born into the family, Right? So the first thing is that God's blessing, uh, the fulfillment of God's promise, isn't dependent on being born into it. Later in Romans chapter 9, Paul uses this argument to explain to the Jews, look, those of you born uh, as Jews, the nation of Israel, God does not have to save you because you're born into it. In fact, he uses this exact story in this exact line. He says, you are not saved, you do not become children of the promise simply by being born into it. It's more than blood. It requires faith. You become true children of Abraham when you exercise the faith that Abraham had. So that's the first lesson. second theological point here is that it's also not passed on by merit. All right? The blessing of God is not passed on because Jacob deserved it. It is always, from the beginning to end, a matter of God's grace. Right? There was nothing about Jacob that was worthy. Right? He is, in every way, a heel grabber. And it just gets worse as the story goes on, as we'll see. And the point, I think, the author is setting out, that God is setting out from the beginning is that the operation of his promise in his program from the beginning is a matter of his own love and goodness. It is not because Jacob was such a good guy. In fact, again, Paul in Romans says, look, God chose to show mercy on Jacob before he was even born, before he'd ever done anything. There's nothing he did that merited God's gracious compassion towards him. In fact, everything that Jacob did went the other direction. 
right? Why has God saved us? Right? Uh, first of all, has God saved you? <laughs> uh, has God reached down and touched you with His grace? Right? Are you a child of God? Well, I hope so. I hope you put faith and trust in God. And if you have, why did God sh- choose to show kindness to you? Is it because you're such a good person? Right? Um, if we're honest, we know that's not the case, right? We know that nothing in us was deserving of the kindness and mercy that God has shown us, right? Maybe outwardly to others we've been a good person, but we know inwardly who and what we are. And the reality is that that's not bad news, that's good news. That God's love and kindness comes unmerited and free. It is grace, right? Grace means God showing kindness when we least deserve it, right? When we are least worthy of it. God, in His grace, freely gave us Jesus. Freely gave us His own Son. And not just gave His own Son, but uh, like Abraham, called the sacrifice Isaac. God the Father sacrificed Jesus, right? Did we deserve such a gift? Absolutely not. Uh, do we have some right to it as a birthright? Well, no. Right? No matter how godly your parents are or your grandparents, no matter what great anchors of the faith they have been, there's only one reason God loves you. It is by His grace. And there's only one way you come to salvation, and that is by trusting in His goodness. Right? Uh, as we sort through the rest of the story, it's important to keep those principles in mind. Uh, God's operation of grace in our life. Let's pray. Father, we do just thank you so much for your grace. And uh, Lord, as we look at these two brothers who were in such bitter conflict and whose parents were such poor examples at times of parenting, Lord, it, 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 it just speaks of, of how real life is. And Lord, maybe some of us here this morning can very much identify with this story. Maybe we honestly have felt not especially loved by our parents at times. Um, maybe we have felt ourselves caught in bitter conflict with our siblings and with family. And Lord, if we're honest, we would say that sometimes we haven't always been... Uh, on the most right side of that conflict. Um, But Lord, we thank you that your grace is bigger than all that. And Father, I just pray this this morning that that if there's anybody here who's just dealing with bitterness, dealing with resentment about how they were uh, raised as a child or even treated as an adult, Lord, help us to fall clearly under your grace, which saves us and is intended to change us to be people of grace as well. Lord, we pray for your grace to come into those broken relationships, into those sibling rivalries, whether it's with our physical blood brothers and sisters, or if it's just within our family as the body of Christ. Lord, where there's been warrings, where there's been conflict, 
that has been scheming, uh, where we've been used and where we've used others. Father, we ask that your grace would come into those things and those places and you would redeem it by your mercy. We ask in Jesus' name. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.